Okay, First Corinthians chapter 6. It's going to be about Christians suing each other in court. That's what this is basically about. And so uh, the danger is that we shut this off right off the bat in our brains, thinking, oh, well, we don't do that. And then we miss the whole thing. So um, with that in mind, uh, chapters 5 and 6, there are three different sections in these chapters. And in the first section, Paul addresses the inaction of the church, what the church should be doing, but they're not, in addressing uh, this man that's living with his father's wife. In the second section, which begins in chapter 6, Paul is addressing the actions of the church, the things that they actually are doing. They are taking each other to court. And then the third section is how chapter 6 concludes and it concludes with bad theology, where they have justified in their own minds a certain form of sexual immorality. And we want to remember the definition of sexual immorality is simply any kind of sexual relationship that is outside of marriage. And we spent quite a bit of time talking about what marriage is. And so uh, these are the three sections, and in all three of the sections, what Paul is trying to accomplish is to encourage the Corinthians, these Corinthian Christians, to see themselves differently. And in the first section he says, you know, clean out the old leaven. Put your old world behind, your old life behind you. All of the things that are, you know, I remember when I repented, I spent several hours in my bedroom just cleaning out my bedroom. And I put it all in trash bags. I filled up the whole back seat of my car and I took it to a trash dumpster on Walmart's parking lot and threw it all away. And uh, to be honest, for months and months later, I kept finding new things that I had forgotten to get rid of. But I did my very best to clean out that room. I found things that you wouldn't believe later, long time later, that showed me a, an old life that I'd left behind. So in this very first, se first section, you'll clean out the old leaven. In the second section, he's going to say things like, uh, such were some of you. He's going to talk about the things that people do. And he's going to say, some of you used to be just like that. In other words, don't be like that anymore. And then in the final section, he says that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you. You can't just live any way you want because you have been bought with a price. And so at the very heart of chapters 5 and 6 is a plea to each one of us to abandon self-centered pursuits that are driven by the old fallen worldview. So let's begin reading in chapter 6, verse 1. Does any of you who has a complaint against someone dare go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Not to speak of things pertaining to this life. So if you have cases pertaining to this life, do you select those who have no standing in the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between his brothers? Instead, 
Brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Therefore, it is already a total defeat for you that you have lawsuits against one another. Why not rather put up with the injustice? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you act unjustly and cheat. And this to brothers. So let's go back up to to verse 1 there. It says, If any of you has a legal dispute against another, do you dare go to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Now in the Bible, saints are Christians. Um, You may be familiar with Roman Catholicism and Greek, Greek Orthodoxy and stuff like this where they have saints. And, uh, you know, they, they pray to the saints. And there's a big, long process, and there's criteria. And the person has to have died a martyr, lived an exceptional life, and uh, they have to wait like five years before they decide if they're really a saint and, and all this business. And so they're, they're recognizing that someone lived a very good life as a believer. And so they're, they're trying to recognize that in this person. Then it gets a little bit haywire because they start praying to him. And the thought process is that uh, they're in heaven and they know better than we do because we're down here. What's going on up there? They know the best way to approach God with something. You know, it's, uh, they come to God and they say, hey, you know, R.C.'s got this issue, but, you know, R.C.'s not bad. You know, I know she did this. And so they kind of sweet talk Jesus about R.C.'s problem. This is the idea. And they believe that they can do miracles for you here on earth. They believe that they can participate in helping you work your salvation out and to ultimately bring you to the place you want to be. And that God has assigned these saints to different things. Like there's this patron saint of law enforcement. But in the Bible, a saint is a Christian they're not dead. They're not people you pray to. Here in this verse, first verse, you can see that clearly we really want these people to be alive because these are the ones that we're going to instead of the courts, instead of to the Gentile, lost, unbelieving court system with our problems. A saint is a Christian. We need these folks to be alive, not dead. And uh, that's because the people in the church are suing each other. Which is crazy, isn't it? Isn't it an outrageous thing to consider that people within the church are suing each other? Do you think that uh, they're going to stay in the same church? Think somebody's going to leave? Think they're both going to sit in the same little room suing each other? You know, on TV you see where those, in England, they'll put those little white wigs on in court. You know, you're like, what in the world are they doing? You know? Uh, and, but today, you know, attorneys, you know what attorneys wear to court, don't you? Lawsuits. They wear lawsuits. But they're suing each other. So here's that divisive spirit that we've been talking about. Here it is again. And while this is very bad, what they're doing is kind of like that, that thing that you've got wrong with you and you went to the doctor and found out that it's just a symptom of something much worse. It's that little sound in the engine that you thought was nothing, but it turned out to be a big deal. The problem here is much worse. 
it is a problem because the church, the Christians there, are characterized by a life of just pursuing their own self-interest. And they're taking their marching orders from the world. This is a really big problem. And by the way, that verse I talked about, uh, about with the saints, the Bible tells us that if we want to talk to God, we have to go through Jesus. He's the, the in-between. He's the mediator. So we don't pray to people who have Christians who have already died. We don't pray to, to Mary or saints. We, we pray to the God the Father through Jesus. Uh, there's one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus. And uh, this is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Now, in this particular situation we're reading about, it sounds like a, this legal dispute sounds civil. If we notice there in verse 8, he says, why don't you just put up with the injustice? Why don't you just rather be cheated? And so this kind of sounds civil. So this is a, a conflict over property or money. But it could be something criminal too. In this situation, it sounds civil, but some criminal matters, I think, could be handled within the church. I can think of some criminal matters that have happened in this room over the past several years that were handled in-house. We took care of our business. We moved on and it was, it was no problems. We, we worked our stuff out. So even a criminal matter. But of course, all of this is within reason. You know, the church is not a collection agency. Uh, we don't have our own prison. And uh, we don't execute people, you know. So uh, you know, it's all within reason. Uh, if if we found out that RC has been robbing banks, you know, we're going to at least have to call Crime Stoppers. RC. I'm sorry, I'm I'm calling Crime Stoppers. So this we have to keep this thing within reason, you guys. Um, uh, but the basic idea here is that the church handles its own problems, if possible, instead of airing out our dirty laundry in front of the world. That's what's behind this. We can think of how it might happen where somebody here hires another person in the church to, to do some work on their house. And they do the work on the house, but they didn't do a very good job. And so you don't want to pay them. And so you say, well, you need to do this and that. You know, you've got to put the door back on. You know, or, and, and you got to put the doorknob on the door. You know? and, and so they're, all right, whatever. So they come over and they, they, they fix it. And the person that's doing the work, he fixes it, makes the corrections, but to his satisfaction, but still not to their satisfaction. You put the door back on, but you didn't put the doorknob on. I'm not paying you until you put the doorknob on. And next thing you know, we're we'll end up in court. These are the kind of silly things where you may actually be right about what you're upset about, but then when you take them to court, guess what? Now you're wrong. So you can be right and wrong at the same time. And just think about what something like that would do in a, in a local church. Do you think that People would talk about it, would it start to get around, would there be gossip? That's not good. We don't need gossip in the church. Um, what about picking sides? All of a sudden people start picking teams that they're wrong. And what about the two families that this is involved in? You know, all of a sudden it's not cool for you to be nice to them because your brother's into this thing and 
And now all of a sudden there's all of this conflict and no wonder this church had so many problems. They were all gravitating towards certain teachers and they were embracing the wisdom of the world and letting it guide their decision making. They were allowing things to go on unchecked in the church that were outrageous that everybody knew about and suing each other. By the way, in court, in Corinth, and in this first century setting, actually centuries before this, but they, they handled all of their stuff in the marketplace. The Agora, that's where people were sold. That's where you went to buy people. Um, but this was in the open marketplace, and it was a form of entertainment. People went down there to watch the hearings. And so they were going to the marketplace, and they were watching hearings about Christians suing Christians. And it's, we do the same thing, you know, we watch Judge Judy and 48 Hours and Dateline, you know. So you can see what was going on. This is where court was at. It was entertainment. Well, so you can see how bad this would be. Now in verse 2 it says, Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? Not to mention ordinary matters. Now, these uh, two verses, you know, don't you know, this phrase, don't you know. And that means that you're expected to know. Don't you remember what we talked about? Haven't you read in the Bible? Don't you remember what Jesus said? Don't you remember that Wednesday night when we had this Bible study we all discussed it amongst ourselves at the table? Don't you know? Haven't you watched Billy Graham on, church, on TV? Don't you know? And so this is what Paul, don't you remember when I taught you this? And so uh, he says this for the first time in chapter 3, verse 16. He says it again in chapter 5, verse 6. He says it six times in chapter 6. And he's going to do it again in chapter 9. He's going to do it in verses 13 and 24. Now, when someone says, don't you know, it's the worst thing in the world for someone can say to you. It's kind of like telling someone to calm down. But when you feel like your rights have been violated, the last thing you want to hear is someone say, don't you know? So it was difficult, tough medicine. And tough medicine because, as we know, they are inflated with pride. They are very proud people. They feel really good about themselves. So they don't like hearing Paul say this. Now, these two verses talks about judging the world and judging angels. First of all, uh, in understanding this, it sounds like in the future we're going to be given greater responsibilities than we have been given now. Whatever that looks like. And uh, I... I look forward to that. You know, I look forward to the idea that if I, if I try to live right for God and, you know, do my best to try to finish strong, that He's going to recognize that and He's going to give me more stuff to do. I want more responsibilities. Um, give me more. And I think all of us feel that way. And so it's, it's wonderful here because we see that resolving ordinary matters that we have to deal with today amongst ourselves at Christmas and Thanksgiving and in, the, in all avenues of our homes and, and at church. All of the things that we've been given responsibility are referred to as ordinary matters. 
and they pale in comparison with what God has in store for us in the future. Uh, and second, uh, don't you know that you're going to judge the world? Don't you know that you're going to judge angels? It sounds like to Paul, this is common, it's common knowledge that we're going to judge the world and angels. And I don't know why that would be common knowledge other than Paul taught them. He told them about it. Uh, God did not see fit to give us the details in the New Testament. There are, there are a number of verses that hint and give reference to these kind of things, but um, it's not really fleshed out. You know? But it sounds like this church knew about it. Or Paul wouldn't have said it the way he did. You know, um, uh, you know, instead of spending the majority of our time this morning talking about what this may mean and when this may occur, it seems more important for us to recognize that in the future we're going to be participating. And what we're going to be participating in is going to be greater than what we're doing right now. Um, the Bible tells us that in, in John 5.22, the Bible tells us that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. And so the Son is the one who judges the world. The Son is the one who judges the angels. But somehow we are included. Somehow we are participating. And I don't know. I can tell you right now that I feel like I would be in over my head instantly to make some kind of assessment about such things. You know? Uh, one of the hardest things to do with the music in church, you guys, and you may take it for granted. I did for years until I started trying to, to participate with what we do here. And to find out that the, that the piano and the guitar is complicated. Trying to get them to match up. It's not easy. And her ability, Lana's abilities and Wesley's abilities come into play. You know, what chords Wesley's good at on the guitar, what Lanta's learned, the style Lanta's learned. And it's a real difficult situation. And they spend a lot of time every single week working on these songs to bring worship for us. And uh, it's a sacrifice, a sacrifice of time and work. And when I hear them talking about what key something should be in, and then they start talking about chords, you know, all I got to do is take a stick and hit the, hit the <laughs> that's all I got to do. And so I am completely clueless on the frustrations, the difficulties, the decisions that they're making. It's a way above my pay grade. And so when we look at what God is t telling us that we're going to be participating in the future about, I don't, I don't understand it, and I don't know that anybody else does. And so we have to have some humility here and recognizing that uh, God is going to hold our hands, but he's also going to give us some responsibilities. Um, you know, it's kind of a, a lesser to greater thing that he's doing here. He says, you know, uh, don't you know that you're going to be judging the world? Shouldn't you be able to judge the smallest cases? Uh, don't you realize you're going to be judging the angels? Shouldn't you be able to handle ordinary matters? It's the idea of if you can pick up 100 pounds, you should be able to pick up five. And so this is what God is telling us is lies ahead for us in the future. Now, verse 4, um, I'm not going to bore us with this, but everybody spends all of their time on verse 4 and how what this verse means, but it seems very straightforward for me. But uh, it says, so if you have cases pertaining to this life, and obviously that's 
talking about legal legal disputes and bickering uh, between brothers and sisters, arguments that unfold over the holidays, all of these things, these cases uh, where someone hasn't done a good job, you you know you trusted them and they fell it fell apart. They didn't do a good job. Well, I did the best I could. Well, your best isn't good enough. You know, all this kind of stuff. So this is cases pertaining to this life. So do you really want to select people who have no standing in the church to take care of these matters? So that's a rhetorical question. Those who have no standing in the church would be unbelievers. Why would you do that? Why would you take your problems to them? Verse 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between his brothers? Not even one. Instead, believers go to court against a believer and that before unbelievers. Therefore, to have legal disputes against one another is already a moral failure for you. Regardless of how the case is ruled, you've already lost. You've already been defeated. And here's the tough part. He says, why not rather put up with the injustice? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you, unjustly, you act unjustly and you cheat yourself. And you're cheating and acting unjustly to other believers. There's those beagles. Well, there's two uh, spiritual truths here. The first one is that God's objectives are superior. This is important for us to recognize. There's uh, some stuff we've already looked at in the letter about how the world's wisdom and God's wisdom, you know, are com competing in our hearts, and we decide which one we want to follow. But one's better than the other. One is exceptionally better than the other. One of them is like a tree planted by streams of running water, and the other one leads to nowhere. But we constantly draw from the wrong well. And so God's objectives are superior. What God is trying to accomplish in our lives is superior to what the world is trying to accomplish. They're on a different page. Their, their objectives are completely different. So resolving our problems with God's wisdom is superior. You know, we have to remember that the world's objectives don't include things like unity and forgiveness. In the world system, honesty really doesn't have anything to do with anything. They say it is, but it's not. Because in the world system, it's really all about you doing whatever you need to do to get what you want. That's, what, that's what's happening in court. What attorney goes to his client and says, well, what happened? And then he says, well, I, I robbed the store and got $186. No, you didn't. Okay, let's figure this out. So he crafts this big tale. We're going to talk about how bad the cops are. We're going to talk about how this person over here was really stealing money out of the register. We're going to, you know, whatever. Concocting lies to cover up your tracks. Maybe you can think of some television court cases 
where the prosecutors did the exact same thing, where they twisted everything around to their advantage. The truth is not important. Honesty is not important. It's getting the desired outcome. That's the world system. And the church should not be taking their matters before those kind of people. We love them. We want to minister to them. We want to witness to them. We want to show them a better way. But we don't put ourselves underneath that if we can help it. It's a mistake. Because for a Christian, honesty is central to who we are. We are guided by our love for God and our love for each other. That's what guides us. So much so that if you got your way, you really wouldn't feel good about yourself. Even on your best day, you really wouldn't feel good about yourself because there'd be this unresolved sin in your life. And that's because we are all driven by love. We love each other. Christians know that we're not supposed to cheat each other. We're not supposed to be greedy. We're not supposed to steal. Instead, we're supposed to be fair and honest and dependable. And we're supposed to go the extra mile. And if we find ourselves on the short end of the stick, we don't have to demand justice. We don't have to be petty. We don't have to be vindictive. Instead, we should do our best to forgive. And even be cheated, if that's what it comes to. God's objectives are superior. And I've got that written down because His way is a better way. It's a better way of living. We are not Americans, are not the kind of people who like being taken advantage of, having our rights violated. Our whole culture is built around getting exactly what you want, however you want it to be. These are the things that if you want this, these are the, this is the way. There's a couple of great ways to cheat to get there too. This is our culture. It's all about us being happy, getting our way. So being cheated and suffering and injustice is pretty much the last thing on our list. And this also brings us and falls within really number one is number two there is that the, the Great Commission requires a great witness. It would be very difficult to witness at Kroger's to the cashier and say, hey, yeah, I, uh, uh, and maybe they'd say, oh, well, God bless you. Well, God bless you. Do you go to church? No. So, oh, well, you should come to our church. Come, why don't you come visit Sunday morning? Oh, really? Where, where's that at? What's the First Baptist Church of Corinth? Oh, <laughs> yeah, is that where you guys are suing each other all the time? Uh, is, that, I, is that where everybody's do, has incest? And uh, yeah, count me in. I'll be there Sunday morning. You know? And so you can see that if, if God is going to use us, it's only, we have to have a good witness. We can be a really good, bad example. You might do that. But the Great Commission is our number one objective as believers is to go out and make disciples. 
baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, sharing what God has done for us with other people so that they can have life too. Now, God is going to accomplish His will. He is going to. But He does not have to do it with us. We can actually become useless to Him. And what a shame for the world to see us not getting along. It's the opposite of Jesus' command. There's only a, a handful of commands in the New Testament where Jesus gave us specific commands. Being baptized as a believer is a command. Um, but here's another one. I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. Look at this. This is the Great Commission. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In verse 7, he says, Why not rather put up with the injustice? Why not rather be cheated? You know, if we really do believe that God exists and that when we die, we're actually going to go to heaven, that that's real. It's not just what we hope happens because life's so miserable and empty and pointless and when we die, we cease to exist and, you know, we're all going to miss each other. The best thing you can do is pass it along, you know, this kind of stuff. So if we really believe God is real and that when we die, we're going to go to some place and we hope it's to heaven. Well, Christians know exactly what's going to happen when we die. And our hope is not defined like that. Our hope is anticipating the fulfillment of our promises from God. And so when we start talking about suffering and injustice and choosing to be cheated rather than getting our way or getting even or having justice, if we really believe God exists, then and that He's sovereign, and He knows everything that's happening, then we have to know that if it doesn't get resolved in this life, it will get resolved in the next. And as Christians, we're to have that heart. So we're not to be thinking, oh yeah, God don't like ugly, and He's going to get them back, and He's going to give it, get them even, and He's going to square this one up. They're going to get what they deserve. What a horrible way to go through life, thinking and wishing those kind of things on another person. You know, Christians should never take pleasure in another person's misfortune. We're supposed to be driven by, the, by love and the fact that if we do suffer in this life, God is going to recognize that and He's going to reward us in some way. This is why we can do this. You know, there's a selfish part of all of us that wants to believe in Jesus so that we can go to heaven, but then we don't want to follow Him so that we can do what we want. That's kind of what we all try to do too much. I, I believe in you. Take me to heaven. But I'm not doing that because that's not any fun. That's not the way I want to live. And that's kind of what's going on here in this church. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. And in that chapter after this verse, there's, there's quite a bit more that talks about this. This verse introduces this subject and begins to talk about it in greater detail.
No one has suffered like Jesus. No one has suffered an injustice like him. And it opens by saying, you were called to this. You signed up for this. Now, in this passage, the context here is talking about unbelievers persecuting Christians. And so in our passage, we're talking about two Christians. And so you could find yourself on the short end of the stick at the hands of another believer. And so it does apply to us. The principles are the same because, believe it or not, you can suffer an injustice at the hands of another believer. And so Peter is saying, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you. He left you an example so that you should follow in his footsteps. Now, the principle here in this passage applies to a whole lot more than just lawsuits. It applies to all of the wrong things that we do to each other. Every word spoken that shouldn't have been said, every time our tempers flare, every time we don't pay somebody back when we should have, every time we do a, a C job until, instead of an A job. It transcends to all of our disagreements. At the heart of this, God is saying um, to us in this passage, He's saying the better way to live is to love each other. And just remember, um, this doesn't mean that Christians are punching back. Or just a pincushion for the world to just beat up on or that I'm an easy mark in here so you guys can beat up on me and I can't do anything about it. It's not saying anything like that. It's, it's talking about resolving your problems. Taking your problems before the church if you have to. So it's not that. But it's saying everything is within reason and when you've done everything within reason and the matter remains unresolved, that's not the time to go the next step, it's the time to step back and say, you know what, God's in charge. I'm gonna let God work on that person's heart. I'll suffer the loss. I'll suffer the $1,226.19. I'll suffer that loss. Yeah. It's all about our heart. It's how, our, how, how we see ourselves. You know, uh, we've talked an awful lot about church membership over the past few weeks. and. You can see the, the importance here. Because if, if two parties in a church have this kind of conflict, one of them's going to leave. They're not going to stay. And it's probably going to be the, wrong, the, the one who did the wrong thing. Because now they're under the magnifying glass. And, and they're in this small microcosm where we all know that they've done something wrong. And we've all pleaded with them and said, hey, you know, this is not the right way. Let's, let's make this right. And they ball up their fists and they're mad. And they may be focusing on a couple of things that they're actually right about. And just because they were right on these two or three things, they refuse to deal with the bigger picture. And they leave. And where are they going to go? They're Christians. They're going to go to another church. And they'll walk in that door and start it all over again. Maybe cause more trouble there. Instead of staying here and dealing with the issue, repenting, humbling your heart, making amends with each other. 
That's the value of transferring membership. You know, I talked about when I went from Calvary Baptist Church to Liberty Missionary Baptist Church, our letter was transferred. And that letter transferred telling this church that I wasn't running from something. I hadn't been at that church and done some kind of unspeakable, ridiculous, horrible thing, pulled some kind of ridiculous stunt, and instead of dealing with it, I left. And I walked in here acting like I was rosy clean when I'd left all of this tragedy in another congregation. That's the value of transfer of letter. Now I got to do that here, but a long, long time ago in a land far away in Missouri, when I repented, I had to start from scratch. And so I came by statement of faith. I didn't have a church home that I had left to, to come walking in the door to. I didn't have that. Maybe you were in the same situation. In closing, I, I uh, was ambitious, and I thought that I would do the entire chapter today. And I really wanted to wrap up chapter 6 before we took our little Christmas break, because next Sunday Alex is bringing a message. We've got a special guest coming. It's going to be really nice. Two special guests. Uh, so it's going to be a nice Sunday next Sunday, a really good Christmas Sunday. The one after that, we're having uh, a wonderful concert. It's going to be a, a class act concert. And then... Uh, a wonderful dinner. It's going to be a good dinner. You don't want to miss all of our church dinners, but you don't want to miss this one, the 19th. It's going to be a good one. So I'm telling you, it's a good one. So, and I always talk about steak and lobster. Well, just come to this dinner. And so, uh, you know, and then after that's a Christmas program. And so it's going to be several weeks before we will return to this letter. And uh, so I really wanted to get it all done, but. And I'd been studying. I would study the whole thing. I just kept studying. I started wrestling with it, trying to figure out how I could. You know, hit two or three points on this, hit the, you know, it's actually three sermons in this chapter, but I was wanting to do it all once. But then Wednesday night changed my mind. Wednesday night. That was our study of the parables. And uh, the parable was of the unforgiving servant. And it's the story in Matthew, Matthew 18 of a man who owes his master just an unfathomable debt. A debt that you could never repay. And somebody in the church service said, well, how can somebody get that big of a debt? Um, well, if you could talk the guy into the investment, and he makes a major investment and it flops, or uh, you take his ships across the Mediterranean and lose it all, or who knows how this would happen. But this man found himself in a bad spot because it was a debt that he could never, ever repay. And the master just completely forgave him and completely wiped away the debt. Well, obviously this man was uh, beside himself with joy and thankful and grateful, which is a picture of each one of us as Christians and what Jesus did for us on the cross and saved us. But then this man, he goes and he meets a, a man who owes him money. Now, the guy who owes him money doesn't owe him very much at all. But it's still a debt. And he demands the guy pays him back. And when the guy can't pay him back yet, he just says, hey, well, give me a little bit more time. I'll pay you back. He, uh, he does a number on this guy. Refuses. 
He did not extend the grace and mercy to him that he received. And it's that heart, it's that attitude of realizing what God has done for you that brings humility and it makes us want to be a good witness to our neighbors and it makes us want to extend grace and mercy to each other, even if somebody's done something wrong to us. So let's pray.